Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Gigabit Nation. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and we are here to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get broadband everywhere it needs to be. Sometimes I feel like some of our best solutions to problems are right there in the open, and we just need to have one of those aha moments and everything becomes real. Um, for a number of years, we in the broadband industry uh, have, using, or have used the analogy, uh, broadband is just like electricity in the 20s and the 30s, and co-ops were the vehicles for getting electricity into uh, rural areas. So the logical question which should be, why don't we just have broadband co-ops? Um, they're they're profit for-profit organizations. They exist for the benefit of the community, and there's a, a, a track record of this model actually working. Uh, so to here to help us address this question of um, why you don't have more uh, co-ops uh, for specifically for broadband is Chris Mitchell who is Director of Community Broadband Networks at the Institute for Local Reliance. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Craig. It's great to be back. And, uh, yes, yeah, sir, you have been here a couple times. Um, so let's ask the big question. Why are there not dozens and dozens of co-ops because, you know, we've been using this analogy of, you know, broadband is the same as electricity back in the old days. Um, wouldn't it seem logical that there are specifically broadband co-ops? Well, I think we should start by just um, being a little bit more precise to make sure no one's head explodes because um, <laughs> there are, and I know that you well know this, there are many co-ops that are doing fiber. It's just that um, we don't have very many co-ops that started to only do fiber, really. And right. um, and that's right. We have not had many of those. And I think the main reason for that is that um, you know the co-ops we do have were started largely, um, the infrastructure co-ops were started largely with federal programs programs that provided uh, low-cost financing, um, very, very smart, uh, in the case of the electrical co-ops in particular, a very smart model. Um, and it's hard to, to just do that without having the benefit of federal loans that can spread uh, the cost over many years of this infrastructure. Um, what we found is that those who want to start a fiber co-op, um, it's difficult for them to find the financing they need to build out these networks, and especially because they're going to be building them in the more rural, high-cost areas. Um, but I, I, I hope that we'll see more of them, frankly. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm trying to reconcile then um, we in the 1930s, uh, had these government programs that encourage co-op development. But we have programs now, like through the RUS, uh, through the Department of Agriculture, uh, NTIA, and so forth. Aren't these supposed to be what those programs were like in the, in the 30s? 
I think those those programs tend to work well for the co-ops that were created in the in the 30s in the case of the electrical ones and more in the 40s, 50s and later for the telephone ones. Um, but it's it's important to note, and I, I actually love to just take a second to note this because I think it's such a mirror of what we're seeing today. Um, okay. The um, when we set up the electric co-ops, you know, the the, the FDR administration um, basically put Harold Ickes on it, and and he was tasked with figuring out how to electrify the farms. And some of the people that he was meeting with were saying the only way we can electrify the farms is if we figure out a way of getting the companies to do it, the big private trusts. You know, they're the ones that have the expertise. They need to do it. And he used a word that um, is, is not appropriate for impolite or is not appropriate for polite society in describing them and basically said, you know, those those people have caused our problems. We're not going to, you know, find uh, we're not going to go crawling to them for them to solve it. And they created this program to launch all these new cooperatives. I think it was a stroke of genius. And those cooperatives have met their their community's needs to a far greater extent than the investor-owned or what we think of as private utilities. Um, now, however, today we're, we're sort of faced with a different challenge in that when those cooperatives were created for both telephone and electricity, uh, they had monopoly service territories. And so they had a business model which was much safer. There was, there was very little risk that they wouldn't be able to get enough customers to be able to pay their costs. But now, you know, we would be, as we try to encourage new fiber cooperatives, they're almost always going to be building in an area that has an existing telephone company. And in the case of a company like, I pick on CenturyLink or Frontier, you know, the telephone companies that serve these rural areas, um, you know, they don't have very good service available. They're not doing fiber in rural areas, certainly. Um, and uh, But they do have DSL, and they and they do have low pricing in, in the cities and things like that. So a fiber cooperative will not necessarily have that rate base that you need to have certainty that you will be able to repay your investors. Um, so that's, I think, the main difference now. You know, I, I would sometimes say, and you know, I'm not a big fan of federal government solutions for the most part. We like local solutions. Um, but I, I sometimes also say that even though the paperwork um, levels that the federal government requires today, you know, it's not a, it's not perhaps daunting for the cooperatives that have been used to that and have grown up for decades getting used to doing that. Um, but if you have a, a new cooperative that's trying to figure out how to navigate the federal bureaucracy, um, they're, they're, it's just really difficult to figure out how that would happen. Um, they don't have the staff to deal with that. Uh, so I think one of the most exciting things about RS Fiber is that it's a model for creating a cooperative without needing substantial money from the federal government. Mm -hmm. And RS Fiber actually was on this show um, in the fall, from the end of the in the summer, and uh, basically, if I'm not mistaken, they are the one and only. Uh, specifically broad, um, broadband-related uh, co-op, isn't it? Right. I do not know of another cooperative that exists and is and is offering service that's like this. There's okay. others that have been contemplated, and you know some people have chafed a little bit at that designation because you know, for instance, the people out that did the East Central Vermont Fiber Network, you know, their structure is 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 broadly similar. There's some important mm -hmm. distinctions, um, but you know, this is a. I think it's a unique model, and and it's, but it's important that it's very replicable. Okay. So now let's let's talk a little bit about the um, the RS fiber uh, project. 
which you just wrote a paper with uh, along with um, Next Century City, and that went live what this week. Last week? Right, yes. Um, my colleague uh, Scott Carlson and I here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance and in uh, cooperation with Next Century Cities um, wrote it and we published it on Monday. Um, and the title is RS Fiber, Fertile Fields for New Rural Internet Cooperative. Hot diggity. All right, I, I, <laughs> I'm making light, but this is actually a very serious um, uh, project. And in fact, um, one of the reasons they were on the show was that this was a somewhat um, complex uh, process that was put together. Um, and in some respects, it moved in according to, as this thing has happened or changed or whatever, they, they basically changed uh, direction mid-project, at least once if not twice, to get to where they are now. But uh, But you wrote the paper. So let's talk about, you know, what makes their project unique? Well, there's a number of things, and, and I think one of the, the most important lessons one can take away from this is the need to have a champion. You know, you and I have discussed this many times. Other people have talked about this. But without at least one person, or in, in this case, arguably a, a, a small team of people that worked year in and year out you know, in these different solutions, it would not have happened. Um, they were they were dedicated to improving their communities, making sure that they would be able to um, have a community that their children would want to come home to after going to college or, you know, making sure that businesses would be there. And that was a vision that sustained them because, as you noted, uh, they did have to change directions. Uh, they initially started off imagining that they would be a municipal network that would be multiple different cities and uh, the county, actually, which would be representing the townships, which are the people in the unincorporated areas outside of the cities, um, that they would all form together in a joint powers arrangement, a joint powers board, and they would create a municipal fiber network. And that model, um, as we discussed in the paper, proved not to work out for them, in part due to the financing challenges. And when that model faltered, uh, you know, they didn't, they, <clears throat> they didn't hit the bar and, and complain. Although they might have hit the bar in terms of um, figuring out what to do next because in the next 24 hours they formed a cooperative. And this is a member-owned cooperative. Um, there's actually a paper out this week about a city cooperative, um, Wired West in Massachusetts, um, which is a cooperative in which each member is a city. But in mm -hmm. RS Fiber, it's a cooperative in which each member is a, is a human being, right? If you take service from this cooperative, then you are a member of the cooperative. You can vote in it and that sort of thing. Um, so when, when the municipal arrangement proved untenable, they formed this cooperative. And then they spent years still after that then trying to arrange the financing. Um, the other twist that I would, I would mention, and since you said twists, is that you know, even though they always had this vision for making sure that everyone was connected by fiber, and for people who aren't aware, I mean, this is deep in farming country. It's uh, the larger town, the largest town, I think, is 2,500. Um, smaller cities are, are around 400, 500 people. These are you know, cities that have um, you know, silos and uh, um, elevators, and they're, they're really built on being um, population hubs around the farms. So it's a real, the, the rural and the city folks are really integrated in this sense. And they didn't want to leave anyone behind. Um, but they, they found it very difficult to figure out how to bring fiber to everyone at once. 
And so they, in partnering with HBC, a, you know, a company I know that's been on your show multiple times, they're a wonderful company out of southeastern Minnesota, Hiawatha Broadband Communications. Mm-hmm. Um, the co-op owns the network, and, and HBC provides service. HBC had this idea of what if we make sure that all the farms or most of the farms can get wireless access on day one, and then we'll do fiber to the cities, and then we'll do fiber to the farm as the, as the next stage. So they can make sure everyone has at least something while they're waiting the several years it'll take, you know, up to six years for some people um, to get the fiber. And so they split it into both a wireless and a fiber project. But in the end, everyone will have fiber. Now, the interesting thing about, well, there's a bunch of things that are interesting, but um, one in particular is the idea of deploying wireless quickly and then letting the... um, fiber build-out happen over two or three years or whatever that long time is going to be. And, you know, what's interesting is that, one, you actually say, as a strategy, we're going to um, employ wireless as part of a real-time solution now. Right, because a lot of these communities that we hear and press releases and stuff, you know, it's like we're going to build a fiber network and we're off to, to deal with that. And it's like, you know, we'll see in three years and that's great. Um, but in, in, in RS Fiber's case, they're basically saying, you know what, we can do a fairly rapid um, uh, deployments and if you do it at, say, well, in their case, 25 uh, megs symmetrical, the average person is going to be joy, overjoyed with that you know, change from where they are currently. So it's a different kind of thinking in, in some respects, isn't it? Yes, I, I think it is. I'm, I have to confess I'm always worried when I, when I talk about that. Uh, because you know, as as you've done a good job informing your listeners, you know, wireless w- alone is not enough to solve this problem. Um, now, when when a lot of people talk about wireless, particularly in industry, they're often talking about you know a 4G kind of solution using uh, LTE, and that often means using a business model which has these data caps, and it ends up being very expensive. Um, yeah, this is a wireless that delivers a high-quality 25 megabit symmetrical product. There's no data caps. You know, it's it's reasonable. It's um, it's certainly a godsend for people who previously only had dial-up or maybe two or two or three megabit up. Uh, mega, I'm sorry, two or three megabit download and less than one megabit upload. You know, for them, this 25 megabit's incredible. But I, I, you know, I asked one of the, the farmers involved in the project, um, you know, if he was worried that at some point the uti- that people might say, well, this wireless is is good enough um, that you know we'll just stop the investment there and save some money, and and he said that you know, when you look at the history of needs 
that while the farms and these people, you know, living on the farms or they're going to be, kids are going to be doing homework, the parents might be um, working remotely for one job or two, um, you know, they're going to be streaming Netflix, they're going to be playing video games, all the things that they're normally used. Well, in four and five years when the fiber is being built out to the farms, that 25 megabit is not going to be like the 25 megabit we think of today. You know, that's, that's going to be, that's going to be minimum. That's going to be below minimum, arguably, for the technology of the day. And I think it'll be very clear as we get closer to that, that, that no one would be willing to settle for that because they'll think of that as being slow at that point. Right. And, and that's, you know, that's one of those issues of perception. Now there, there is a general, there is a general sense on some people's parts that um, people want to have the least expensive option that is better than what they had before. I mean, the people at Midwest, which is an electric co-op, um, they're building out uh, the areas of uh, Michigan and I think parts of Minnesota, and um, they're saying, you know, they at one point they raised um, the the speed cap um, for a m- month long promotion, and then people could go back to their you know uh, um, uh, speed before, or they could you know take the option to, to to upgrade, and they found out that a lot of people didn't take the option, and so I think there's a kind of a a mixed reaction, right, where there's a thing where if you want to get the less expensive, and that's fine, but then what you're also saying is that as time goes by, you know, when you get to like that three or four year mark down the road, you know, what's acceptable is going to go up, and subsequently, you know, it'll reconcile that whole thing of I want the cheapest thing now to, you know, well, I still want the cheapest thing four years from now, but what I'm going to want is going to be a lot higher, you know, speed and capacity and stuff. So Right. I think in many cases, of course, dial-up is cheaper than uh, than broadband, um, but you certainly don't see many people opting for that. So, um, yeah, I, people ha- people certainly have a tendency to take the, the the lower cost of the sort of what we might think of as reasonable tiers. Um, and um, But one of the things we've seen from uh, municipal networks in particular, and I've studied them more than I have the co-ops, uh, but they tend to increase that minimum threshold speed, you know, every few years or so, often without raising prices. Uh, you know, right. I know that the, the cable companies say that they do that too. Although I get a note from Comcast in January that says, "Hey, we're raising your bill seven dollars a month," and then six months later I get a, a note from them saying, "We're doubling your speeds at no cost to you." <laughs> and I think, great. In six months, my bill's going up again anyway. So um, yeah. you know, there's just a different dynamic when it's a co-op or a community-owned approach. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to the, re- the the report. So was this a just an overview of what they had done, or were you looking at particular like analysis type of of a report that says you know because of this and this you know we they see x and y and z you know result and so forth which what's the nature of your report 
we really took the case study approach where we're, we didn't really do a lot of analysis. Every now and then we, we try to point out things that we think are really important. Um, you know, they, they've, we've certainly already seen actually economic development results, um, you know, in terms of new investment in one of the communities that has the fiber, um, that had the fiber last year. Um, and so we are seeing um, you know, those sorts of results, but we tended to, to do more of a documentary role. And in particular, the thing I really wanted to nail down and, and the part that can be hard to describe is how they financed it. And I, I think this was I think of this as being revolutionary because, you know, you, they had these local governments that wanted to build this project and they, they were willing to bond for it and to take out um, debt in their name that, that if the if the bond was not able to, you know, if the project was not able to pay the bond cost, taxpayers would have been on the hook. You know, this was a, these were communities that were willing to take the risk, but they still just didn't have the capacity due to their small size to pay for the entire project because of the extreme costs of going past every farm. And and they had this idea that I think, I hope others will pick up and run with in the same way, in the same responsible way that they have in our, in uh, Renville and Sibley counties, um, which was that the cities bonded for a portion of the cost of the project. Now, this is a, a $45 million project overall, broken into two phases. The first phase is $15 million. That phase gets you the towers and the cities getting fiber to the home. And then the second phase will be getting fiber out to all the farmers, and that's the higher cost phase. Um, now, what we already talked about, the, the wireless services serving the farms, well, that's going to create a cash flow that will help to pay some of those $30 million costs uh, over time because you have all these farmers that are paying into the co-op and um, able to um, you know, help the co-op get some reserves to pay for those costs. But to get the $15 million project off the ground, to get it even started, the city's bonded for $8.5 million, uh, which is a little more than half of the cost of the first phase. They needed to raise the rest of the money, but they couldn't get it from the RUS, uh, you know, the Rural Utility Service at USDA, um, and they they weren't able to get the grant, all the grants that they that might that that might have helped them. They need to raise another four or five million dollars. And what they did was they took the money that the cities had bonded for, um, and they the cities created this bond. They raised eight and a half million dollars, and they loaned it to the cooperative as an economic development loan. The, the, that loan was subordinated to future debt. And, and what that means is that in the event that the co-op is not able to pay all of its debt, the cities get repaid last. So the cities took on almost all the risk from the project, which allowed community banks to loan the co-op money. You know, for community banks to, to loan half a million dollars or a million dollars or even more than that in a few cases, that's a substantial loan for, for a local bank. But because the local government took the risk out of the project, they could make that loan. And, and in fact, it's actually, I would say, probably a very great loan from the perspective of the bank because there's almost no risk and they're getting a good return on it. But that allowed them to raise all of the money that they needed. And if this project was to, was to struggle, odds are that people's property taxes might go have to go up a little bit, a few bucks a month. Um, it, it's almost impossible to imagine that the project would fail so catastrophically that they would 
that they would have no revenue from the cooperative to pay back the loans. Um, but even in that case, you're looking at property tax increases of, you know, if I'm remembering correctly, and this is in the report, of 10 15 maybe $20 per month um, on average for, for people. So um, it's not a lot of risk. And frankly, I think if you told people, uh, a fair number of people, you're going to have this great network and and your taxes might go up, I think a lot of those people would say, well, even if my taxes go up, I'm still going to be coming out ahead because I'm getting this incredibly high cost connection at um, at um, a fraction of what I had been paying previously for DSL or satellite or something. Um, but the, the important part there with all those details is the idea of local governments raising a significant part of the process, not having to raise all of the money, but taking on most of the risk. And I think you need a certain kind of population willing to do that. I think rural areas, it makes more sense than to think about doing this in heavily metro areas for a variety of reasons. Uh, but I really think that can unlock uh, the, the funds that are needed to start co-ops like this around the country, where they may not have existing electric and telephone co-ops that can just do what they've already been doing. Um, you know, If you already have an electric or telephone co-op, odds are you should try to work with them first rather than just creating a new co-op. Right. Okay. That that would make that would make sense. Um, are the people at a point where it's easier to make the case than say four years ago? Um, you know, is there is there is there overall goodwill? and also an understanding of the benefits of broadband to a degree that people or the average person on the street says, you know what, this makes sense to have a, you know, a $10 or $20 increase in, you know, taxes. I mean, you know, you know I'm saying it's not, it's not a guaranteed that they'll have to do that, but, but basically, you know, are we at a point where, People can look at that and go, "Oh yeah, sure. You know, broadband. It's worth ten bucks, twenty bucks extra uh, on my tax bill, or uh, you know, some other way it's going to come out. Um, you know, are, are people willing to make that change or adjustment?" I think we are, and I, and I think four years, as you put it, is a is a good dividing line. I think four years ago, maybe um, we wouldn't have been in that point. There's been a tipping point in between then and now, but I think we are very clearly at that point now, not for all communities, but for a lot of communities. And I want to be clear. I mean, looking at RS Fiber and the amount of enthusiasm I do not expect anyone's taxes to go up at all, and and I think yeah. it, it's very unlikely that they would. Um, I think this project is going to um, be a success in all manner of ways, in addition to being financially a success. But if you if you look at a community like Rio Blanco County in Colorado, and in Colorado, you know we've seen this string after string of referenda, um, and and just real smart local governments that are recognizing they need to do something for themselves. Uh, Rio Blanco is a rural county. It's quite conservative. And they um, are building a fiber and wireless project. Uh, it's open access. And they are doing it with um, uh, some grant funds, but with some county funds. 
And that's money that comes straight out of the tax base. I don't think their taxes were increased, but people were overwhelmingly in support of their existing tax dollars being used to build this infrastructure. And and I think that's pretty common, especially in rural areas. Uh, I was just talking to someone who had done a survey recently as they're considering expanding, and something like you know 87% of people in a, in again a rural conservative part of the country. Um, the 87% had said that they thought that broadband was a utility like electricity and others. And uh, I, I just, I don't think uh, 87% of elected officials uh, act that way, but I do think that 87% of their constituents, I'd believe that they were, you know, thinking along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, now, are we going to see a point where the enthusiasm for uh, broadband and the general relaxed ace, um, um, a, a sense that you know this is going to be an okay investment. Is that going to change? Uh, do you think in some of the the states where um, there are restrictions against municipalities, is there uh, is there a possibility? Uh, that we can turn the tide um, and get some of these laws um, removed? Well, I sure hope so, but I'll tell you the truth. I'm not holding my breath because, uh, unfortunately, when it comes down to the amount of uh, power that that money can have in politics, especially at the state level, then um, it's not enough to have a majority of opinion on your side. You really have to... Um, the uh, well-organized and cagey. And I'll just use as an example in Tennessee where this has been uh, one of the most well-organized fights to try and remove a barrier uh, where the state law, um, the state law arguably, um, I say arguably because the FCC has struck it down, but that is being appealed as you, as mm-hmm. you know, in the court right now. But um, Tennessee law um, does not allow a municipality to offer electric um, to offer telephone, I'm sorry, be very precise, does not allow uh, a municipality that has an electric utility offering um, a high-speed Internet service to le- to offer that to anyone outside of their boundary. Uh, this year, I really thought that that bill was going to, that that law was going to be changed, but it, it wasn't. It failed in committee, and it was unreal, the amount of effort that Comcast and AT&T put into it. Uh, the report suggested, I think it was 27 lobbyists uh, were working on behalf of AT&T and Comcast uh, for a, a committee vote that ended up being five to three. Uh, you know, they the industry really doesn't want us to be able to have competition. But this mechanism that RS Fiber used, I think, um, this is not is not prohibited by any of the states uh, that are uh, that have those sort of restrictions. And so, because this is fundamentally a cooperative, which is making the investment and owning the network, and then um, in this case leasing it out to a private entity. But if you had a co-op that was running its own services or whatever, those are not targeted by state laws generally. And so in most places, people could organize in this manner, which I think is most appropriate in rural areas, uh, without worrying about state law getting in their way. Except for Tennessee, where they actually in the, um, they restrict co-ops as well as the um, 
the, the, the municipalities, which I thought well, was insane because uh, co-op is a pro- for-profit organization. And to basically say, you know what, we're going to you know, disallow a for-public uh, entity, um, you know, it's just crazy. And, and I'm not sure how it got, you know, got in the books in the first place, but that's part of the problem with uh, with, with co-ops in in Tennessee, at least. Uh, and you're right; most of the other places, um, they the, the state legislatures don't tackle the co-ops. But I think Tennessee is the one exception. Well, you're you're sharp in that. Uh, certainly, uh, most people are not aware of the restriction in Tennessee, although. I believe that only applies to the electric co-ops. I don't think that applies to any co-op. Um, and so uh, creating a new co-op, I think, would um, not be prohibited um, under the, the Tennessee law that you're, you're pointing out. But that is certainly ridiculous in Tennessee that they also restrict their electric co-ops in that way. Interesting, interesting. By the way, um, before I forget, um, so we were we were um, at the summit um, a couple of weeks ago, and did you notice that there were a number of financial people in in the audience, <laughs> meaning like people from institutions of one sort or another, uh, small, large, whatever? Um, I hadn't think that I wasn't here last year, but I mean. Is this like a change I th- uh, that we were seeing? There's a little bit of a land rush, I think. <laughs> uh-huh. um, yes, there is. I can't tell you how many times this has come up, even just you know since the summit in Austin, the Broadband Community Summit, um, because a number of people have been pointing out how many people are interested in this. I think that people who are looking for a good return on investment, um, because the the stock market's not looking so great, because bond returns aren't that great, and because the you know the safe returns are such a low interest rate, they're recognizing that that basically competing against uh, companies that are as hated as AT and T and CenturyLink and Comcast, that that is a really smart investment. Um, now I I worry about this to some extent because. I think you, know, you certainly know that my vision for this is that it's best for communities if the communities own the infrastructure. And I yeah. think a lot of these places, they're thinking that, hey, we're going to put in the money. We want to own the network stuff. And I think that's a recipe for trouble over time. Um, you know, One of the, the most important parts of RS Fiber being a co-op is that they'll control their fate. They don't have to worry about this sort of situation where, um, to use an example out of Oregon, Bend um, had a terrific local provider. TDS bought it. It's been a, kind of a disaster of a switchover. Um, people are furious. Um, but you know, when a company is privately owned or when it's owned by these financiers, well, they can sell it at any time. And what you would expect to happen is a number of these networks will be bought, uh, will be built by people that are looking for a good return. And Comcast will eventually say, all right, all right, what's it going to cost? You know, what's it going to cost us to reconsolidate all this stuff? And and they will pay that price because they know what a premium um, they can get by having a monopoly again. So um, I worry about the amount of financial interest. And I, and I think that, 
um, if we can find ways of marrying all that financial interest for a, a good long-term return with cooperative ownership or community ownership, then the needs of the community will be met and the needs of either pension funds or the, the banks or whoever it is, that they can also get the return that they need. Now, the, the, it sounds like you have to walk a fine line to make this thing work. Is it? Do you think that's doable? Is there, you know, I'm number one, is there precedence for doing this kind of stuff? And, um, you know, but can we can we look after both interests, you know, the public and the private sectors, and especially the financing uh, organizations? Um, can we can we keep them both happy? I think we can. Um, you know, I think to some extent it, it comes down to having reasonable expectations. Um, one of the things that, that I was struck by at the at the summit was I think some people are really excited about the number of recent public-private partnerships. And in some cases, they're using private capital. In some cases, we're looking at new public-private partnerships that are being developed with um, uh, sort of these new companies that are bringing their own capital into it. And um, what what I've been seeing is that where communities are willing to take the risk is where the action is. Um, you know, for communities that have not been willing to take on any risk, there's not been a lot of solutions for them. And I, I think that even in places where um, there's, there's some firms that I think with um, – uh, let's just say that I don't consider them to be honest when they claim there's no risk for the municipality. Um, I, I, I think there, there there still is risk, and I, I don't think most of those deals are going to go forward if there's a claim that there's no risk for the municipality. But I think where municipalities are willing to take some risk and um, they can access these sort of funds, there's still going to be a good return. I mean, I, I, I would think, you know, in the order of Right now, a, a solid 5% return, as far as I can understand, is, is pretty decent given the um, the nature of the market. But I'm I'm actually I'm a little bit out of my element there in talking right. about that. But I think you know I think if cities can make something work and give uh, their their financiers a 5% return, that's pretty good. And uh, but the key is is that the city has to take some risk or put up something, or else the city will not have any stake in owning it. You know, no one's going to come along and right. say, I'll give you millions of dollars, I'll take all the risk, and you can make all the decisions. That, that's not how it works. Right? <laughs> um, and so fundamentally, I think the key to all of this is where local governments have educated themselves. And I don't just mean like where they agree with me. I mean, they actually have educated themselves <laughs> as right. to the risks. Um, and and then they are willing to take those risks because they recognize that it's a it's a good investment for the future of the community. Um, but and that's getting back to RS Fiber to bring this back to them. They spent so many years educating um, their elected officials, educating the people in the community. They would go from town to town, from city to city, I should say, and they would have three meetings a day. They would have a meeting in the morning, a meeting in the afternoon, and a meeting in the evening to make sure that people could attend. There was no excuse for not being able to make it out to learn about the project. Um, over many years, they did this. They did two mailings in which, in each case, they mailed something like 7,200 uh, mailings out to every single address in the county or in the service territory. 
Mm-hmm. And and gave them information about the project. They mailed them the uh, the fiber to the home uh, primer or primer, depending on what you want to call it, which is put out by broadband communities and the fiber to the home council, and it's available mm-hmm. for free basically. Um, you know, they 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 went to such efforts to educate their communities, and I honestly believe that if you have people in the community in any community who are willing to work that hard, um, then there, there's going to be a solution that you can find to uh, solve these sorts of problems. Right. Now let's talk about, look at, um, there's EC Fiber and then there's Wired West. And you mentioned that basically they are similar to a co-op, but they're tying in the um, representatives of the towns. And there's there are, I don't know, 20, 30 different uh, towns in Wired West case, and there were 12 or 12 or something like that for um, EC Fiber. But how would you, I don't know, you know write about or talk about uh, the success and some of the upheaval that's going on that's been going on with uh, West, uh, Wired West? Well. Um the first of all, for people who really want to dig into it, the a new report from the Berkman Center, um, which is uh, written by David Talbot, uh, Wayne Warner, and uh, Susan Crawford, just came out yesterday. I'll give people the title. It's Wired West: A Cooperative of Municipalities Forms to Build a Fiber Optic Network. Now, um, Wired West, I, we've long followed them, and I've thought that they were, um, you know, a group that was really dedicated toward. Um, figuring out a good solution, a smart long-term investment for their communities. Um, for a long time, they were trying to figure out how they could do it without putting the local government's skin in the game, you know, without local governments really pledging any any money. And mm-hmm. I think they made their best progress after they realized that they would have to put some skin in the game. And frankly, they might be well on their way to breaking ground if not for um, MBI, the Massachusetts uh, Broadband Institute, um, was was going to provide a substantial amount of the money, but MBI is um, is now concerned about the business plan and and um, it's not really clear what's going on there. Um, you know, to that I would I would say that one of the challenges of whether if you're a local government and your and you and your model depends on state or financial funds, then you do have to make them happy. You know, it's not a matter of no state that I'm aware of will just say, okay, we're not, you know, we're just going to let you do whatever you want to do with our money. Once again, where the money comes from tends to be important. That's why right. I really like models that, that don't depend on jumping through those state and federal hoops to the or to the extent that we can minimize them. Um, and let me just say, while we're here, the Minnesota Broadband Grant Program, which gave uh, RS Fiber $1 million, is a terrific, well-run program, I think, in terms of minimizing hoops like that. So states mm-hmm. can avoid generating lots of hoops. They have some smaller ones. Um, but your, your question about Wired West, they've been organizing for a long time. I think a number of people are wondering, well, what's going on? Uh, well, they're in a very you know high-cost area to build, and it's, it's very challenging. Um, it, frankly, the, the wireless model that has helped RS Fiber to be more financially sustainable might not work as well in the Berkshire Mountains. Uh, you know, it, it's different topology, and the wireless signal may not have the same uh, results. So uh, there's a number of challenges, uh, but I think that, once again, the progress began to be made when local governments said, uh, we will put skin in the game. 
Um, now, EC Fiber is entirely different, um, but EC Fiber did just uh, EC Fiber for people who aren't aware is these communities in um, Vermont that have been working for a long time, and it's a um, interlocal agreement. Um, and actually, now it's a telecommunications district, I believe, under the law that changed. And I should know this better, but it's blanking on me right now. Uh, but they've just wrapped up significant financing to to really increase their build out. I think they've been an incredible success when it comes down to just a crowdfunding model and showing how people in rural areas can aggregate demand and work together in smart ways. So, you know, if I was in a rural area listening to this show right now, I think I'd want to look at each of these three models and figure out what's most applicable to me and and, uh, what lessons can I draw from each one. Now, would you consider all three a co-op? I well, um, I would not consider EC Fiber a co-op. Um, it's broadly similar. Um, I, w- I would say, additionally, I don't think of co-ops as being for-profit. Um, there certainly some are, like Lando Lakes and very large co-ops um, might be considered that way. Um, but um, this is a you know, I think of a co-op like RS Fiber as being a non-profit kind of model uh, because you know all the profits are distributed among the the member owners, and and I, I just find that to be in my mind, it's different than a for-profit model with a corporation. Um, but with um, Wired West, it's a co-op of local governments. And so um, it's not its not a direct democracy in the same way that RS Fiber is. Because, you know, if you wanted to change the policy of Wired West as an individual, you would have to go to your local government, convince your local government, and then com- the local government would have to make a case. And so it's just, it's a little bit, um, more challenging, um, but that said, I think that Wired West, you know, has more capacity for borrowing because of the way they have structured it. Um, you know, I think there, there, it's more likely that that co-op would receive loans from um, larger loans and whatnot um, without having to take on necessarily the same risk that RS Fiber has. So there's some some pro and con kind of issues. I really like RS Fiber. I like the idea of member-owned co-ops, um, and I and I think that over over a period of decades, member-owned co-ops uh, might stand a better chance of making sure they're they're keeping that service local and and really um, at a high level. And would there uh, would there be a um, <clears throat> uh, the same uh, threat of having uh, maybe that's it's right so. If you look at a private entity that comes in to be a partner with the city or what have you, and uh, as you go down the road, you always have to worry about, I think, um, what if the the company, the, the private sector company, changes, they're, they don't want to be in the business anymore, you know, they're, they're a family-run organization, they don't, you know, the family members don't want to be involved with it. Um, you basically are dealing with things outside of your control more so than not, um, are we going to have to worry about that in the, uh, the say, the, the Wired West approach? Well, it's, it's not entirely clear um, in the sense that, um, you know, if a local government gets frustrated with Wired West, um, is not clear um, to, to my mind what would happen then. Um, yeah. you know, to some extent, this is this is a case of anything in which you're working as part of a larger whole. 
And um, you know, the similar thing might, if you might say is if individual members get frustrated with RS fiber, what can they do? Well, they can, um, you know, they can make their case at, uh, to the board. They can try to replace the board to get people of a different point of view on the board who are making decisions. Um, you know, I don't know that that either one of them is a safeguard against that. Um, now, in the case of Wired West, Wired West itself is not really dependent on others in their model. I think they're going to be providing service themselves, I believe, uh, whereas RS Fiber is working with uh, HBC. And now, if for some reason, let's say in five years, HBC's ownership somehow changed hands and, and they weren't doing great customer service or there was some sort of problem, well, RS Fiber owns the infrastructure and so they could negotiate a different contract or they have you know, leverage available to them. Uh, that's certainly something that's not available to Kansas City or to a number of other places where they have these public-private agreements. And so, you know, I don't know that it's necessarily a case of of thinking of it, oh, well, we have to do it in-house. Uh, I think RS Fiber shows that you can, you just need to have leverage. And in many cases, I think owning the fiber itself is important. You don't you don't need to operate it, but if you own the fiber, then you have more power to negotiate to set to set, you know, um, certain expectations uh, for how service will be delivered and the quality of service and that sort of thing. Right. Um, one of the we're working on this um, this other paper about public private partnerships, and the one of the things that that um, the or one of the founders of our organization, the Institute for Local Self Reliance, loves is that in the contract from Westminster with that the city of Maryland has with Ting, uh, it specifies that calls to customer support must be answered by a human being. And that's something that you can you know require um, as long as you have the leverage to do so. Westminster owns the fiber. They have more ability to, ne- to negotiate those sorts of contracts. Um, so I, you know, it's just something I think is important to think about. I, I would think that that's actually um, – sort of the heart of the issue, uh, particularly when you're dealing with public-private partnerships, and that is the, um, you know, what is your leverage point? And typically, you know, a deal which guarantees the city or the the communities have the leverage point, and, you know, um, that that's makes seem makes the most sense I think that um uh, because the other things the other parts of it you can deal with you know you can find new uh contractors you can find uh people who will roll out trucks if you don't own the the trucks and so forth um you can deal with that but one if you've got the actual infrastructure itself the pipes in the in the ground then that's um, because that, that that's where you really come again. If you look at where we're having troubles with um, uh, broadband, you know, it's because there's no one except for the the monopoly or the duopoly that owns the actual physical infrastructure. And you know, if they want to do a high uh, a, a, um, increase the prices. You know they can. If they want to put data caps, they can. And so basically, I think that that's to be the big takeaway from this whole thing is um, whether you do it as a co-op or you do it as a public-private partnership. You know, when all is said and done, 
who actually owns that actual, you know, the the, the pipes, the infrastructure part. In my opinion. <laughs> anyway. uh, yeah. Well, certainly, um, I'm nodding vigorously in full agreement. Uh, I think it's a, it's an interesting question as to why then that's not the case often. And I think it's because people think in, in, in too short of term. Um, when when you have an elected official that is presented with a with an option of saying, well, we could take on some risk and do this. Um, you know, you're certainly going to be some people who are going to be opposed to it. The cable and telephone companies are going to be very upset with you. Um, if something goes wrong, you're going to be blamed. Um, or we could have a private company do it and... Um, and and this private company, you know, will um, perhaps in several years leave us high and dry, but you will be out of office by then. <laughs> you know, you'll be yeah, yeah, somewhere yeah. else. <laughs> yeah. It will, it's a it's a question of trading off today's problems and tomorrow's problems, and of course, elected officials in many cases have a lot of incentive to say, well, I'm just going to focus on today's issue. Uh, something that um, uh, the head of Ting says, Elliot Noss, um, is that you know he goes to towns and, and and he's trying to find partners. He's working in Holly Springs, North Carolina now, and they announced um, Sandpoint, um, Idaho. Uh, so they're in they're in four different communities at least now. And when he goes places, he says, "Look, you know, we we're happy to do two different ways. One is uh, you own it and we operate on it, and the other is that." Uh, we uh, will build it and own it, and then we will set the rules. It'll be our network. It'll be our rules. And he will tell them point blank, if I was you, I would not let me own the network. Um, you know, I would say that you would own it. But he says in every case, the elected officials say, no, we want you to own it because they're viewed as being a hero because they are bringing investment to town. You know, they're, they're not taking any risk. This is viewed as being a, a positive benefit. And this is something that, you know, for old timers like you and me, I shouldn't even I shouldn't put myself in your category. You've been doing this for so much longer than I have. But yeah. you remember Graham Richards. Um, yeah. Oh, he, yeah. Yeah. He talked to he was I would always when I had conversations with him, I'd be so frustrated because he would talk about how the first thing he would do is beg. Right. And he begged Verizon to come to uh, Fort um, what was it? Fort, Wayne. Fort, Fort Wayne, is, yeah. is it Fort Wayne? Something I was thinking, yeah, it's, Fort, it's Indiana. I was thinking it was Fort Wayne, and then I was doubting myself. But he begged Verizon to put a Fios in Fort Wayne, and they did. And, and he would talk about how that was just so great that they didn't have to do anything. You know who operates that network today, Craig? Isn't it Frontier? It is Frontier. Frontier has had miserable reviews for everywhere in which they've taken over Fios. And, and in California, I think they're going through this right now, too. You know, Frontier is um, a company that is um, really struggles to do a good job. My parents use Frontier. I have to, had to deal with them on multiple occasions. The people from there, I'm sure, are very nice people, but their service is bad. And when Fort Wayne lost Fios, they didn't have a say in it because they didn't have anything, you know. And there's no, there's no company that's going to move to Fort Wayne to get service from Frontier, in my <laughs> opinion. Um, so those are some of the things that people need to be thinking about rather than the things they are. But that is the dynamic that we, that you know, you and I have to deal with on a regular basis basis mm-hmm. by the way um i only got a couple of minutes here um do you think you know for for the for well we'll call it the last eight years it has been given as a guarantee that if you do these networks you will have an imp- improvement in your economic development 
Okay. Um, is that still true? You mentioned that with with uh, RS Fiber, you know, they've been at this for uh, not not that long, but I think they they've 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 seen some definite um, impacts, right, of having that this uh, thing in place. What's your take on that? I mean, is are we really getting, you know, is the economic development thing real? Or is it still hopeful? Uh, well, I think it's a it's a precondition. It's it's not sufficient. Um, you know, it's certainly not a guarantee. And I and I think that um, communities need to recognize that that it's it's one of those situations when you're climbing a mountain and you get up a really high ridge and you just see that that ridge was hiding the fact that there's another higher ridge behind it. Um, mm. There's there's a lot of work that needs to be done to build the network and then to next take advantage of it. Um, you know, I, 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 I know of places that have not had significant new investment. Uh, they've certainly helped existing businesses to expand, but uh, they have not had a new, you know, firm from outside of town come to town. It's, it's certainly not a guarantee. Uh, what we're seeing is as more communities get fiber, of course, that that if you don't have fiber, and, and by fiber I don't just mean fiber, I mean open fiber, fiber at a reasonable cost, multiple options for redundancy, you know, mm-hmm. there's a number of preconditions. If you don't have those sorts of things, you're not on the list. Um, right. But – but you know, so the first phase is just getting on the list, and then the next next thing you have to do is figure out how to get yourself higher on the list, and often that has to do with figuring out what you do very well and, and marketing it and that sort of thing. Right, and it's not uh, you know it it is not automatic, though I think it is often pronounced as such. You know, it's like well, this is why we're going to do this thing. But I think that probably one of the best things that can be done by uh, RS Fiber and everybody else is um, a very serious but honest, you know, evaluation of the economic development impact so that people have a real idea of what they should expect. Yes, and, I, you know, I think... One of the things I expect, particularly in rural regions, is that first movers will have a big advantage. I think everyone within 30, 50 miles of this project, you know, if they're thinking about moving, if they're thinking about starting a business, I think they're going to be looking at putting it in a place that has fiber. And they're going to hear about it, you know, through the neighbors and things like that. Um, so I think that, you know, that Sibley County will be a, a big winner in terms of people moving into those areas that have the fiber. And um, and I would expect that the next county nearby that does it will have some gains as well. But at a certain point, you're just going to be, you know, swimming to stand still or running to stand still, whatever the – that's a really awful mixed metaphor, I guess. Um, but <laughs> you'll be – you know, you'll be – it's just a matter of, you know, you'll have to do it because – um, it, it's it's just too late for you if you don't. Right. And, and, and at, I think at that point, a, you're not well, at that point. You're not arguably not going to have anything special. You'll just be the last one to get it, and that's not what you want to do. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, I think we, we you know we we covered this topic fairly well, and and that's good because I mean I I think that um, number one that people should. Uh, think about the option, right? Because we 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 tend to be, I think, uh, the people just go, okay, we got this option, option, and that, and that's it, and we're done. 
And if it doesn't work, then it doesn't work. And so, you know, I think exploring options is a big deal that we still need to do a lot of. And then also when the communities like um, RS Fiber need to really document what happens as these things go along so that we have, a again, a better idea of what to expect in the counties around but I think we're I think we're in good shape. So thank you, Chris, for taking time to uh, to be here. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, it was a pleasure. And we'll do this again someday, I am sure. Uh, and to the audience, thank you very much for listening in. Uh, we will be back soon with another great inter- interview. Thank you, and have a good day.